I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man made out of tears. I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. Dialects and subtongues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown and Stephen Murray. Uh, Stephen Murray, would you mind running through the reason why we're here? Uh, just for anyone who, this might be the first episode they're listening to and they're thinking, well, I, I like the cut of their jib so far, but why should I keep on listening? What, why are we doing this? Because I've got a lecture cycle called Pivotal Moments in Science Fiction Films. And another title for that, a.k.a. is 50 Years of Shit Robots. Because I noticed between 1927 and Metropolis and Maria and 1977's C-3PO, uh, there's just a wasteland of really terrible, terrible robots. Yeah. I think that, an, like we've said this before, but an alternative name for this podcast could be put a question mark at the end of it. Because we have found mm. within the years that... So we're, we're now... The film we're looking at today uh, is from 1957. So we're sort of 30 years into the 50 years. And there are at least two <laughs> robots that we've decided that we like in that, that sort of 30 years. So it's, it's, it's mostly shit, I'd say, isn't it, so far? It's moot. It's up for discussion. <laughs> yeah, it is. And brings us nicely on to the film that we're going to be talking about today, which is called Kronos from 1957, which you talk about, you know, also known as, but I love Kronos's AKAs. Kronos, destroyer of the universe, or <laughs> Kronos, ravager of planets, which are two great titles, aren't they? Yeah. I'm just going to quickly summarise the the plot, which is that aliens come down to Earth because they see Earth as an energy source. They send down an enormous robot, sort of robot spaceship, and uh, it starts attacking our uh, um, power plants, um, our cities, just gobbling up energy so that it can uh, take it away and use it to power its own uh, species. That's, yeah, that's a sort of it, walking it? battery. Yeah, there's this, this enormous walking robotic battery that goes around sucking up energy like <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis does in the film There Will Be Blood. <laughs> I suck your milkshake. <laughs> it basically, it goes around doing that, doesn't it? That's comparable to your Gordon's Alive. <laughs> it's a very similar impression to Isn't my it? Brian Blessed. Kronos, um, Greek scholars, you'll know that Kronos is a god. That's right, isn't it? Kronos uh, was one of the leaders of the Titans, who were the precursor to the great gods uh, from Greek mythology. He was the father of Zeus. Mm -hmm. Zeus overthrew him uh, and castrated him and threw his testicles into the sea. So no, there's not much similarity with the the Kronos battery. No. <laughs> Batteries. <laughs> Absolutely no resemblance to what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So do you think that it's just they just call the robot Kronos because it's big? It just sounds good. It does sound good. It is well, a good actually, name. it was the inspiration for the name of the robot in The Incredibles, and the the, the end robot looks like a big testicle. 
And so we, that's, there you go, that's the reason. We have made a connection. A connection. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. Okay, so we've, we've just watched Forbidden Planet. That's the film, that, the robot film that precedes Kronos. And one thing that I could not help but think that you've got this beautiful Technicolor extravaganza in Forbidden Planet, and then you've got quite a... Just, we're just back to black and white again, and it just mm. feels a bit sort of... I think I would have been quite disappointed <laughs> after, after seeing a, an amazing colour film to then have to go back to black and white. The budget was axed, that's why. How much? He'd had, was... a, he'd had a much bigger budget, had something like three times the budget it ended up with. So they, one of the things that goes is the color process, which is enormously expensive. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that went. It was. It. It is still beloved as a as a science science fiction sort of trope. Yeah. It was so different from everything that had yeah. gone before. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. I'd say that that the film has a lot of interesting ideas in it, mm. and and that central idea that there's an an alien species who basically uses as an energy source, I thought was was excellent. Yeah, and it grows bigger the more energy it absorbs. Yeah. How they're going to get it off the planet after it's absorbed so much energy, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, that's for the aliens. Exactly. exactly. So this is, an, this is another one of these films that comes out of the Atom Age, uh, and there's a lot of things, like Ivan Tor's Mag- Magnetic Monster, which is another um, film about... Uh, a thing that absorbs energy. Godzilla is a product of uh, radiation and gets huge. Yeah. Then you've got the beast from the 20,000 fathoms, which is another creature that gets a huge size because of radiation. In England, we had X the Unknown, which was a radioactive monster that gets bigger and bigger. Then the weird monolith monsters, really strange one from 1957. And that was a meteorite that crashes on Earth but, and grows because of water, but crystalline. And anybody who comes in contact with it gets turned into stone. Wow. You could say that giant creature, we always think of these rampaging monster films as being Japanese and the kaiju films. Mm. But the Beast from the 20,000 Fathoms was the first one, which is a huge, great big lizard, which is ironically killed with radioactive a compound at the end inside a roller coaster. But um <laughs> I know. Sounds good. So these are all coming out of the Atom Age, but the but the, but Kronos has a, an environmental message in it. It's very brief and it comes from the antagonist and a brief moment of lucidity um when he says that uh, it's it's eating up all of the energy and we really should be more careful about our energy sources because they could run out. So it's yes. very brief, but it's very rare to have that kind of message in a science fiction film from that time. Yeah. Okay. So the film begins, and this is one of the nice things I think about these fifties sci-fi films is that they do they get into the action really quickly, don't they? Just straight in, and this is no exception. The first thing we see is a flying saucer, and as we learned from last week's lecture by Professor Stephen Murray, flying saucers equals aliens. Whether they do. It's, whether it's us being the aliens or whether it's aliens being the aliens. Very good. You've learned something. <laughs> so, so, so the flying saucer is back. So obviously they we're thinking uh, aliens are coming and the aliens need to find the, the right person who can control the energy situation, don't they? 
They need to have a puppet, yeah. the right puppet. They do need to have a puppet, and this is quite interesting, I think, because I think this is the first film where you get a car that cuts out in the presence of an alien entity. Because this film is in kind of, it's in two bits, isn't it? You've mm. got the uh, alien possession story, and then you've got the giant, giant robot story. Yeah. And the alien possession story definitely comes out of It Came From Outer Space, which was 1953. This is an idea I really liked, where where the alien inhabits one person and then that person then finds somebody else who's a bit closer to the person that they need and and then they transfer the alien from that person to the other person this sort of alien spirit moving from body to body up the up the sort of scientific food chain i thought was a really nice sort of like idea also one thing that i've been meaning to say for a few films now is um, where they sort of depict a star field outside a spaceship or, or just outside, you know, on Earth, the sort of like the, the sky at night. And they do it in this film. And there are some odd, odd, odd representations of, of stars. It's like a painter's overalls. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And I was thinking about the story um, about Neil deGrasse Tyson the astrophysicist and science communicator, apparently after seeing the film Titanic, was so incensed that the night sky couldn't possibly be the right night sky that he wrote to James Cameron um, and didn't ever, ever get a reply. But he said that when he subsequently watched the film on a DVD release, he noticed that the sky had been changed to the correct sky. So I was thinking oh. that, that Neil deGrasse Tyson would not be a fan of this film. No. Well, he's, what was the other film he poo-pooed? Oh, The Black Hole. <laughs> yeah, it's the science in The Black Hole. I mean, come on, Neil, DT. Exactly. Get with the programme. Early in the story, a, a major scientist gets possessed by aliens. and Dr Hubble Elliot. And so he sort of then is... His motivation is then to create a situation where he can find all of the best power stations for the um, the aliens to sort of, like, suck up. But then there's a, a kind of another storyline happening with a couple of other uh, professors, Dr Leslie Gaskell, Dr Arnold Culver and Vera Hunter. Mm. Uh, they've seen the spaceship in the sky, but they think it's a sort of comet at first, don't they? And so they're trying to work out what it is. Yeah, I think um, it's a, they think it's a, a, an asteroid. That's right. And they have to, through a series of photographs that they take and get developed, Vera Hunter is the sort of like the, the photograph developer at the science labs, they then work out that it can't be a meteorite because it's, uh, the, its pattern of movement is too strange. But I really miss the world in which they exist, where you have to take a photograph, get it developed, wait for it to be developed. It is authentic. That's how it was done. You would take yeah. some photographs and then you would place the photographs on top of each other and see a movement. Yeah. Now, Vera, yeah. Vera has a, she's got a good role. She's not just there to scream. She doesn't no. scream once. No. She's a science lab person, but also she's the love interest of Dr. Leslie Gaskell. She is, and she's a bit flirty. And we see we see smoking in the science lab. That, that always catches me yeah. out these days. I know, same here. Yeah. But I remember smoking in cinemas. I do as well. We're also introduced at this point. So when, when all of this, this research is being done about what this, this meteorite could be, we're introduced to another character called Susie. 
(laughs) (laughs) Susie is an enormous computer. Did you write it down, the acronym? Good, because all I did was take a photograph of my TV screen (laughs) from the couch and I can't be bothered to open my phone and read it out. (laughs) Did you know that I'd be be all over this? Yeah, you love an acronym. You love love an acronym and you love finding out what the cost would be today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those are my two roles on this, on this podcast. <laughs> so Susie stands for Synchro Unifying Cinemetric Integrating Equitensor. Yeah. And so I... Because I didn't understand any of those words. In I, that order. I looked them all up. And so... so um, so synchro is short for synchromesh, which is a system of gear changing. Sino relates to China. Uh, metric related to measurement. Uh, unifying is becoming one or whole. And equitensor is a data set. So, so what it means this computer does, according <laughs> to that name, is it's the machine that exerts a uniform amount of force on everything it touches by calculating a combined average for several simultaneous measurements of the Chinese. Excellent. That's all I can say on that one. (laughs) It's almost like they came up with the name Susie. They wanted to call the machine Susie, and they've they've sort of retrofitted words, scientific-sounding words, to make it fit. So it could be the love interest for Dr Arnold Culver. (laughs) Exactly. Because that's how he treats it. He does, so it's sort of like a lot of gob- gobbledygook, isn't it? Yep. Did you recognise um, George O'Hanlon's I re- voice? I, no, I recognised the name, but I didn't... No, I didn't. It's George Jetson. No. He's the voice of George Jetson, yeah. He was probably a bigger star than the two mains. So the next thing that sort of happens is is that they is that the flying saucer crashes into the ocean. The This is because they have... This is where the um, the reporters come in. Uh, they, they still think it's an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth. So then the scientists basically say, right, you've got to shoot it out of the sky or else it's going to cause massive amounts of, of damage. Then we get these scenes with the reporters, one of which is a real reporter, which reflects uh, the day the Earth stood still. Mm. And so the military get involved to shoot it down to prevent it from creating a big disaster. Okay, so they do, it lands in the sea, and hooray, everyone thinks it's all good. Yeah, and then our heroes decide that they want to investigate it now because it would take too long for the science community to get a team together. They said it would take over a year, so why don't we go there now? Two of them go off in a helicopter to... um, to Mexico. uh, Mexico. Mexico, yeah. Yeah, and then V returns up later on with a headscarf on. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. And then there's there's a bit of romping on the beach mm-hmm. between... Um, Leslie. Leslie and Vera. Between Les- Leslie and Vera, who at this point just sound like two old ladies. Yeah. Are you all right, Leslie? And then uh, Vera proposes to Leslie on the beach. Have you got the line? Oh, he says, he said- do you think you'll ever be able to respect a husband that has pulled the scientific boner of all time? <laughs> and then... <laughs> Then Arnold comes along shouting, Les, Les, that thing, look at the size of it. <laughs> Just as as Les, Leslie is talking about his scientific boner, there is, I, I don't understand what that means. 
what does what does it mean? What is the what in the in the context of the fifties? What is he saying? I, I think it's. I don't know. Is it scientific boo-boo? Like he's made a mistake or something? He's made a big mistake, yeah. Big mistake. So he's, he's a scientific boner. The biggest scientific boner of all time. And at that point, out of the sea comes the robot. Yeah, this huge grip, big bulge appears. And then the next morning, there it is, standing on the shoreline. Yeah. This colossal, great big giant. And one of the things I really like in this film is the look of the robot. Yeah. It's really good. It is. It's really weird and and just looks unlike anything we've seen before. It's big enough to land the helicopter on top. Yeah, it's enormous. It looks like an installation, an art installation on the South Bank. It just stands there. It's just a massive sort of m- megalith. It hasn't got its antennas out at this point, so it's lo- it looks even more sort of minimal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've dis- you described the robot in Target Earth... I think is looking like a a car Brutalist park. car park. Yeah, but this in a, this, in a dismal new town. Yeah, but this looks like a brutalist art gallery. It does. It could be the Haywood. It could, it could be the Haywood. <laughs> it literally, actually, it could be the Haywood gallery. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was really brilliant, and it and it remains brilliant and, until until it 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 does its it does its little um, line dance. It does a little stompy, stompy line dance. <laughs> it sort of starts to walk, and it you can. It's really unfortunate. I mean, I don't know if it is or not. Whether again, I'm I'm being too twenty twenty three about it. No, it is unfortunate. I think again, this is where the 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 budget cut came in. Yeah, there's something quite another another kind of funny bit where it's stomping along, and uh, it stomps on lots of um, Mexicans. I didn't see that. Yeah, it stomps on some Mexicans, but they're not they're not Mexicans. The footage is stock footage from another film that's set in Hawaii, so they've all got Hawaiian shirts on. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Uh, I mean, so essentially now we're on the we're on the downward slope to the sort of final confrontation, aren't we? I suppose. Yeah. What is it? I, obviously, I've forgotten. I only watched it two days ago, and I've completely forgotten the ending of this film. What happens at the end? The ending actually comes from the antagonist. He, because he keeps having these moments of lucidity, he gets rid of the alien in his personality. This is Doctor. Uh, um, what's his Hubble. name? This is yes. This is Hubble Elliot. Doctor Hubble Elliot. Yeah. After killing the psychiatrist. Yes. Who I was um, annoyed about that because his psychiatrist delivers a lot of great exposition for us, for, for us yeah. the viewer, about the the motivations of the of the uh, aliens. Yeah, so he says that you've got to find a way to reverse the polarity um, and they realise that the two antennas, one's positive and one's negative, and if they can turn the negative into a positive, then the energy will be directed down and it will consume itself. It's on the outskirts of Los Angeles. I mean, right on the outskirts of Los Angeles. It's Mm. sucking the energy out of the, the city. And then they do find a way of reversing this with some material that they're going to drop. And this bit of the film just goes on. And then they do drop it, uh, and they eventually get the creature, the the robot, to reverse its polarity, and then it blows up in stock footage from, I don't even think it's an an, an atom, I think it's a hydrogen bomb explosion, which which would destroy L.A. Yeah. But it doesn't destroy LA. No, it doesn't destroy LA. And then, then once the robot is destroyed, then there's a tiny conversation at the end, where 
um, I think Vera says, what if there are any more? <laughs> and <laughs> Leslie says, well, we'll be ready for them. And they sort of like, like dust his hands and they will all walk off. They do an awful lot of looking into the middle distance at that point. <laughs> As the, the end slate came up, I was thinking to myself, let's say that that, 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 it, that happens in our world, that, that aliens come like that and we defeat their, their machine, but then there's the threat of more coming, possibly. We're unsure. What would happen next, do you think? And I just was thinking that there'd be sort of like an enormous sort of funneling of cash into the military and that we would essentially become like a totalitarian world in order to sort of like create the the the, the infrastructure to, to do battle with such a, a superior intelligence. We would just have to all just knuckle down and we wouldn't be able to make podcasts anymore. We'd have to become drones wouldn't we in a in a in an army against the aliens but we wouldn't though would we because the united states would want to be the leaders the russians would want to be the leaders the chinese would want to be the leaders <clears throat> everybody would chirp in and we wouldn't get anything done <laughs> so we'd be ripe for for takeover yeah, exactly yeah. And then then all of a sudden we turn around and they're here yeah there's a couple it's... of little asides yeah go on the communication console and screen from Klaatu's flying saucer uh, from the day the Esther still can be seen directly in the background in one of the labs Brilliant. when Vera gets attacked by Dr. Hubble. This is the first, it's one of the first big giant robot monsters, but it also, uh, Godzilla predates it. But this giant creature thing, I think I gave you, asked you to have a look at a link called Dreams of the Rabbit Fiend, the pet. It's a short animation. It's a, it's a, it's early animation, so it's not particularly very good, but it predates everything on the giant monster front. Oh, right, okay. It's, it's really interesting. 1921, it's Windsor McKay who came up with the uh, the concept of the dreams of the rabbit fiend. It's all about somebody who, ha who eats a Welsh rabbit late on uh, in the evening, and then he has nightmares. And this one is a pet that turns up at the house and just consumes loads of things gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then um he tries to poison it which just makes it even bigger and it gets so big it's it's rampaging through new york eating everything and it eats a it eats a gas station right and it's hanging out of his mouth and an airplane flies down and shoots the gas thing and then explodes yes like in jaws like in jaws yeah and yeah. that's 1921 brilliant so let us rate Kronos, the ravager of worlds, destroyer of the universe. Seven out of ten is our benchmark. Anything less than that is, is deemed a shit robot. What do you think? On an imagination level, I think. And if they had the budget, it would have been really good. Yeah. I think it would have been groundbreaking. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, I suppose that... It looks so different from everything we've seen before. Mm. It it has it's it has an equivalent of the of the the tap the, the taps on its shoes for me in the way that it walks. It's so sort of like hamstrings the my sort of the the belief I have in it as this sort yeah. of entity that can cr create destruction. It can't move. It it can't possibly move. I think I would have preferred that if it had just land. If it had just known where the power plants were, 
So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like it is still a bit shit. Yeah. But it is. It's probably a six for me. Oh, go on then. I was going to say five, but yeah. you know. Okay. Let's, let's say five then. Five and a half. Let's five and a half. We've never had a half. <laughs> because I don't think it can. I think it is still shit. But I think it's 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 getting it's getting close. On an imagination level, I think it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think the whole film on an imagination level is pretty mm. cool. But I'd say yep. it's also quite high on the boring level. As well. <laughs> Lots of stock footage. They you can they just shove it in. Yeah. All right. So Kronos, nineteen fifty seven, is now done. We move on. We're now three decades into the fifty years. That's extraordinary, wow. isn't it? Yeah, it is. But the films are coming thick and fast. <laughs> Emphasis on the thick. <laughs> and our next film is our first foray into Japanese cinema. We're looking at The Mysterians from 1957, also known as Earth Defence Force. So it's a, it's a kaiju film, right? It is a kaiju film, yes. Yeah. So and I am we... very fond of kaiju films. Excellent. Well... <laughs> Just the few stills that I've seen of this <laughs> make it look amazing. <laughs> so looking forward to seeing this. So uh, that's your homework for next time. If you fancy watching along with us, then um, watch The Mysterians by next week. That's your homework. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. You think you'll be able to respect a husband who's probably pulled the scientific boner of all time? <laughs>